Okay, I will be reading from the complete Jewish Bible. Heaven is my throne, says Adonai, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house could you build for me? What sort of place could you devise for my rest? Didn't I myself make all of these things? This is how they shall come to be, says Adonai. The kind of person on whom I look with favor is the one with a poor and humble spirit who trembles at my word. Those others might as well kill a person as an ox, as well break a dog's neck as sacrifice a lamb, as well offer pig's blood as offer a grain offering, as well bless an idol as burn incense. Just as these have chosen their ways and enjoy their disgusting practices, so I will enjoy making fools of them and bring them to the very things they fear. For when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not hear. Instead, they did what was evil in my sight and chose what did not please me. Hear the word of Adonai, you who tremble at his word, your brothers who hate you and reject you because of my name have said, let Adonai be glorified so we can see your joy, but they shall be put to shame. That uproar in the city, that sound from the temple is the sound of Adonai repaying his foes what they deserve. Before going into labor, she gave birth. Before her pains came, she delivered a male child. Who ever heard of such a thing? Who has ever seen such things? Is a country born in one day? Is a nation brought forth all at once? For as soon as Zion went into labor, she brought forth her children. Would I let the baby break through and not be born? Asked Adonai. Would I, who caused the birth, shut the womb? Asked your God. Rejoice with Yerushalayim. Be glad with her, all you who love her. Rejoice, rejoice with her, all of you who mourn for her. For that you nurse and are satisfied by her comforting breast, drinking deeply and delighting in the overflow of her glory. For Adonai said, I will spread shalom over her like a river and the wealth of nations like a flooding stream. You will nurse and be carried in her arm and cuddled in her lap. Like someone comforted by his mother, I will comfort you in Yerushalayim. You will be comforted. Your heart will rejoice at your sight. Your bodies will flourish like new-spouted grass. It will be known that the hand of Adonai is with his servants, but with his enemies, his fury. Thank you, Paula. Shabbat Shalom. You may know that the uh, congregational office is in the Denver Tech area. And I'm not quite sure why, I don't understand the biology of it, but for some reason there is a gaggle of geese uh, 
that have uh, chosen to make their home um, in the area where we have our office and uh, every so often they come and um, sashay across the road and you have one or two choices. You can either run them over, honk at them vigorously or else just sit and wait while they're either think or cogitate or do their business. Um, it's very odd. At least I find it very odd because of my background in uh, biology. But uh, I was reflecting about the fact that 130 years ago, um, you could not describe any of that in Hebrew. Did you know that? 130 years ago, Hebrew was essentially a dead language. Um, it was used for one or two purposes. It was used as a, of course, still is, as a uh, sacred la language um, for prayer and reading of, of the scriptures. Uh, it was also becoming more and more a language for the Jewish intelligentsia who were beginning to write and, and uh, uh, write poetry and all kinds of essays in Hebrew, but nobody else was doing anything in Hebrew. So there was a, uh, a visionary, a wild-eyed visionary named Eliezer ben Yehuda, who was, there were a few others like him, but he was the the one who carried the flag, mainly, who was convinced that if the Jewish people were going to be back in the land of Israel, they needed to speak their own language, Hebrew, rather than Yiddish or Ladino, which is the equivalent of it, or one of the other languages. And uh, when he married, he demanded as a condition of marriage that his wife commit to raising their children speaking only in Hebrew. Something that had never been done before. That was part of the challenge of seeing the nation of Israel being raised from the dead. Jewish people were scattered all over the globe at that time. You had um, a very small Jewish population that had lived in Israel, primarily the very Orthodox, around Jerusalem, some of the other holy sites, holy cities rather. Um, but eventually, and you know, God has a way of getting people's attention. And in the 1880s, uh, the... Russian government along with the Russian church became committed to a horrendous policy where they determined that they would either kill one-third of the Jewish population, forcibly convert the other one-third or else drive out um, the remaining third of the Jewish population in the, the Russian um, Empire at that point. And so because of that, there was a great deal of ferment. 
And people were beginning to wonder, well, do we need to come back to our own land? And by the way, at that point, Israel, or what was then known as Palestine, was under the control of the Turks. And the notion of Israel coming back and Jewish people coming back and living in Israel was something that was phenomenal. And... uh, Again, there was a wild-eyed visionary named Theodore Herzl who was an assimilated Jew. He was a journalist and playwright and so on and so forth. And uh, everybody was wrestling with the so-called Jewish problem. What to do about Jewish people? The fact that we didn't quite seem to fit anywhere and we were persecuted and people didn't like us and et cetera, et cetera. And one of the solutions, believe it or not, that Herzl accepted, embraced, was the notion that Jewish people should become assimilated into the populations where they lived and basically be phased out of existence. Uh, That would take care of the Jewish problem, right? Theodore Herzl was one of those who believed that. He was for all intents and purposes, a totally assimilated Jew. Uh, Observed absolutely nothing. And the newspaper that he, uh, for which he was a journalist, sent him to Paris, this was 1894, to cover what was the Dreyfus trial. And Dreyfus was a a Jew who had been a captain in a French army and who was driven out by an anti-Semitic plot. And there was a big hula baloo going on in Paris at that time uh, because of that trial. And uh, Herzl, who was prepared to become a non-Jew, as he's covering the trial, he's hearing the mobs, the Parisian mobs running through the streets, saying, death to the Jews, death to the Jews. And that grabbed his attention. And he realized at that point that the solution to the Jewish problem as he saw it to assimilate was really not a solution. That Jewish people needed to come back to their own land and a place where they would be able to dwell in safety just like the Germans had Germany and the French had France and so on and so forth. And he, of course, began uh, a very vigorous drive that then became known as Zionism. Um, And so Jewish people started coming to Israel to emigrating first under the Turks and then under the British You may know the story. If you haven't, let me encourage you to pick up a book of Jewish history that describes that. But in any event, the British were originally very favorable. Then eventually, because of oil and other factors, became very anti-Semitic and squeezed the immigration of Jewish people. So that by 1948, very few Jews were coming to the land There was approximately 600,000. And the United Nations 
was dealing with the so-called Jewish problem for different reasons because there were there was fighting going on between the Arabs and the Jews and with the British and so on. 1947, they decided to come up with a, are you ready for this? Two-state solution. 1947, two-state solution. Um, the Arabs would have a big chunk, a nice big chunk. The Jews would have little slender strips. And of course, we would have the entire Negev Desert. Right? And even at that point, there was a big debate going on in the Jewish community among the leaders whether or not we should declare statehood. And David Ben Gurion, who was a, a bulldog, uh, pushed for that in 1948, in December, um, May 14th, declare the state of Israel into existence. You'd think that that took care of things. Absolutely not. That same night, the Egyptian Air Force bombed Tel Aviv. And armies from five nations, five Arab nations, began pouring over the borders of Israel. The Jewish people had almost no weaponry, mostly homemade. In a whole country, there was the Israeli Air Force was comprised of two or three single plane Piper Cubs and the uh, bombs that they used sometimes were seltzer bottles that make a sound as they come down and I can go on and on and on uh, by the way as, as you know I have very personal stake in this my father came from World War II having fought in the Russian army, rather in the uh, Soviet army, and then almost immediately within a few months of coming to what was then Palestine, um, war broke out again and he was drafted along with all the other able-bodied male into the what became then the Israeli Defense Forces. And the fact that Israel stood under these conditions is nothing short of a miracle, folks. There was absolutely no sensible, logistical, strategic reason why Israel became a state and remained a state other than the power of God was massively behind it. And what's intriguing is that as is often the case when God performs miracles, this one was predicted in a number of places, but most vividly in the passage that Paula read to us. Can a land be born in one day? Well, it was. Can a nation be brought forth at once? It was. Why? Because this was part of God's plan. Remember that God's plan operates with him predicting it through the prophets of one kind or another. There's a prophetic word. And the plan for restoration is laid out. And then God's power kicks in at his appointed time, not our appointed time, to bring that about. So Israel that had been somewhat of a dead nation comes together 
and it is born. And by the way, the Hebrew word there for brought forth has the connotation of travail and anguish and pain and writhing, writhing and fear and so on and so forth which it definitely was the case. Here you had several hundred thousand Holocaust survivors who had just come to Israel, managed to get in, and here you have war, and here you have the formation of the state. But you know, it's intriguing that the Lord, speaking through the prophet Isaiah, uses very vivid pictures, word pictures, to communicate and in these verses you have 13 times where you have word pictures having to do with birthing or child care and nursing. Now, personally, I can't relate to any of that. I've never been involved in childbirth. Thank you, Lord. Um, you know, I think of Bill Cosby's uh, profound statement that if a man wants to know what childbirth is like, he should take his lower lip and pull it over his head. <laughs> the closest I can come to it is the upheaval that came into our life in a form of a little package named Isaiah. You know, our life was radically changed. Um... Our sleep was radically changed. Our schedule was radically changed. And what filled our screen was this little writhing little package. So I can re relate on, on some level to, to the process obviously not like a, a woman who has given birth to children. But what's intriguing for me is the fact that these words having to do with giving birth not only have to do with the physical aspect, with the exhaustion and, 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 and the pain involved physically, but also the emotional turmoil. You know, the doubt of whether the child will be born healthy, even today, you know, with... with up, with up-to-date hospitals, superb medicine and birthing uh, clinics and, and etc., uh, you still have some percentage, some possibility that the birth process will turn, turn out to be awry, that it will not turn out well. You can imagine in Isaiah's day that the possibility of things going wrong for a woman who was in childbirth was significantly higher. Didn't have hospitals, didn't have surgeons, they couldn't uh, wheel her in into OR and do a C-section, so on and so forth. So th there was not only the physical aspect, there was also the emotional aspect of the pain, the writhing, the reality that the birthing process will not turn out well. And so God uses that as a picture to refer to the nation of Israel that, that, that the, the people are writhing in this, this form of uh, giving birth 
And by the way, the rabbis used the same picture to refer to the coming of the Messiah, of, of childbirth um, and the labor involved in that precedes the coming of the Messiah. Chevlei Mashiach. But the difference here in relation to the country being born is that God's plan and God's power are brought to bear so that he sees fit that this birth will actually come about. In fact, in verse 9, what's ironic is that the Lord is describing himself as the one who, who is giving birth to the country himself. Goes back and forth between Zion and God. Why? Because God's power has to be involved in facing difficulties and by the way, this is a principle that we find throughout Scripture going all the way back. For example, in Exodus, we see that the kingdom of God advances in the face of opposition. You know, the, the, uh, the power of God and, and the good news of Yeshua doesn't come smoothly where people get on the air and, 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 and do a TV or do internet, etc., etc., although that is done. But there's a great deal of opposition. You find that in Egypt, that despite or through the fact that Israel, the people of Israel were slaves to Pharaoh under harsh conditions, including attempts at ethnic cleansing. Remember that in chapters 1 and 2, the Egyptians were commanded to take the male children and throw them into the Nile. Despite that, you have the people of Israel growing from a patriarchal family of about 70 plus people to 3 million in the midst of that oppression, in the midst of that difficulty. And you find that throughout Scripture. You see that, for example, in Ephesus, where you have a great deal of occult practices, witchcraft and soothsaying, and the worship of the goddess Diana, that's where you have the power of God breaking forth big time. Where all people needed to do was to touch Paul's hanky and they were healed. Big stuff. Again, the power of God at work and the kingdom of God advancing in the face of opposition. You certainly have that for the people of Israel, for the state of Israel. The state should not have come into being. The state should not have continued. And in fact, even today, you have similar struggle going on. And let me do the on one, one hand, on the other hand, in terms of the good things that are taking place in Israel, and then the challenges, the difficulties. On one hand, you have Israel as the Silicon Valley of the Middle East. Companies, European, American companies who want to, to do startup technology come to Israel to find scientists and, and other folks um, who are able to, to take their ideas and develop them. A bunch of the innovations that we use 
have come from Israel, including voicemail. I don't know if you knew that. That came from Israel. And a whole bunch of others. Um, you find the fact that the United States and Europe went through awful, awful economic upheaval, and Israel has emerged relatively in good shape. You don't see people having to come and give billions of dollars to bail Israel out like they had to do with Greece, Portugal, and Spain. And on top of that, there is, there's been the news of a massive gas and possibly oil field discovered off Israel's southern coast. So there are predictions at this point that Israel will become an exporter of gas and possibly of, of oil. You know, people used to joke that Moses led the people of Israel out of Egypt and brought them into the only place in the Middle East that didn't have oil. That may be changing. So you have that. But you also have the continual, what, what feel like perhaps not a birthing travail, but certainly danger and challenges to the existence of the nation of Israel. I read that Iran is investing $1 billion in recruiting computer experts to mount cyber warfare against Israel. Iran, Hezbollah, and Hamas all have missiles that can reach anywhere in the land of Israel. I was reading about a, um, a museum of avionics in southern Israel that shows you all the planes of combat, planes and etc., etc., going all the way back to the beginning. And part of this museum, which outdoor museum, is the fact that on the property of the mu museum, there is an Iron Dome installation to intercept any possible missiles coming from Gaza. And if you've been reading the media, you, you're hopefully aware of the fact that Israel, at times, seems to be losing the propaganda war, including in the evangelical church. where the so-called Palestinian theology of the land is being, being considered to be more and more a live option, the notion that Israel does not have a God-given mandate to the land. You have all these things, again, 64 years after the formation of the state of Israel. And you listen to that, and you can, if you care about Israel, you can be discouraged. until you step back and realize one basic fact. That the God who lights up the day with sun and brightens the night with the moon and stars, who whips the ocean into billowy foam, whose name is the commander-in-chief of the armies of heaven. If this ordered cosmos ever fell to pieces, fell into chaos before me, God declares, 
Then and only then might Israel fall apart and disappear as a nation before me. If the skies could be measured with the yardstick and the earth explored to its core, then and only then would I turn my back in Israel, disgusted with all they've done, declares the Lord. This is from Jeremiah 31, 35 to 37 in Eugene Peterson's uh, paraphrase. What we often forget is that God's overwhelming power is involved in seeing to it that his plan for Israel will continue and his plans through Israel to impact the nations will continue and that he sees to it that every enemy who is engaged in attempting to stop the process in God's plan would be dealt with severely. Scripture tells us that Zion's enemies are God's enemies. Paula read to us the fact that God is roaring, repaying his enemies for all they deserve. And no, we definitely do not rejoice in the fact that people who choose to be Israel's enemies suffer. Brock and I met with a Jewish fellow this week who had a major objection to God, not just Yeshua and Messianic Judaism, but God, the fact that God would tolerate and welcome people getting killed who seem to be enemies of Israel. What we pointed out to him is the fact that A, God gets absolutely no pleasure from that. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, says the Lord in Ezekiel 18. And secondly, the fact that God allows and gives all kinds of latitude and time and opportunity for these enemies to repent. However, when the time comes, he has to act decisively we observed Yom HaShoah Holocaust Awareness Day last Shabbat it's good to remember that Germany paid a steep price for cultivating Nazism Germany was driven asunder, divided into two. Its major cities were flattened. Millions of people killed. Eventually it recovered, however, it paid a very deep price. Simply reinforcing the message that those who are Israel's enemies set themselves in opposition to God Almighty. So no, we don't rejoice in, in the fate of Israel's enemies. We rejoice in the fact that God's plans and purposes for Israel come about. Despite the pressure, despite the opposition, despite the pain, 
we know that God's plans and purposes for Israel are secure. Can you say amen to that? It's, you know, it's difficult to get our arms around that because of life and facts on the ground and so on, but God tells us to act in the knowledge, in the hope, in the expectation that his plans for Israel are in fact a reality. And here in verse 10, he issues a very strong command. Rejoice with Jerusalem, be glad for her, all you who love her, rejoice greatly with her. You have three strong command verbs that say to people who read these words, who are God's people, rejoice in what God has in mind for Israel. Helene helped me see some of the nuances here. And let me just take a moment and, and, and tell you about these three words. One of those words connected with the noun simcha often has to do with good circumstances. You know, if, if God blessed a farmer, the farmers of Israel, they were to take their crops and bring it to God's house and, and bring a, a, a tithe, a first fruits rather, and celebrate. Simcha. Rejoice. But this same word is connected with the reality that there are times when circumstances aren't peachy keen and you learn to rejoice not necessarily in the circumstances but in God. And even when the cup looks half empty because of God's presence in your life you choose to say the, the cup is half full and by the grace of God it is getting fuller. Can you say amen to that? Simcha. The other, the other word, and this is something I, I don't do very well because I don't dance, and I don't, I, I, I don't have decent rhythm. I, I just bang the, uh, the tambourine where nobody can hear real well. But the second word has the sense of rejoicing vigorously and twirling and circling in dance as an expression of joy. And then the third word, sisu, has the sense of exploding with joy. When was the last time you exploded with joy? By the way, these are commands which, which tell us that at some point God wants some kind of response from us. Uh, interesting presence here. God wants a response. He doesn't say rejoice, think about it, and go away. He says rejoice and do it. How do you rejoice? How do you rejoice? Singing, dancing, expressing what's in your heart? 
Even when it seems like the glass is half full, folks. Because of God's presence in our life. Rejoice those who love her. Why, why should we love Israel? Because God loves Israel. The Lord appeared to me, and this is the verse we read earlier today, I have loved you with an everlasting love. He doesn't say, I love you, and when you disgust me, I get sick and tired, and I throw you out into the trash heap. Which is, by the way, what we hear from fellow believers over and over and over again. One basic problem with the notion that God has rejected Israel is that if he makes these very strong statements about his love for Israel and then says, oops, what will his attitude be about us when we are less than pristine and glorious in our relationship with God? The fact that he looks at Israel, despite all that the nation has done, has done and says, I love you, gives me great hope, great consolation. I have loved you with, never, with an everlasting love. And by the way, the fact that we love Israel doesn't suggest that we hate Arabs. Which is unfortunately the increasing chorus of anti-Israel voices that is coming including from fellow believers we understand the fact that God has a plan for Israel God has a plan for Arabs good plan furthermore loving Israel doesn't mean that we look at the country of Israel we look at the government and we say and we sanctify everything that takes place in the country Folks, especially for those of us who are Messianic Jews, there are things in Israel that are very painful because portions of the government is very hostile to the Messianic Jewish community. Those of us who want to come in and become citizens run into that brick wall from time to time. So no, it doesn't mean that Chesed means covenant, loyal, committed love, despite rotten behavior. And if you're a parent, you know that. You understand what it's like. You love your kid, even if they're absolutely obnoxious. Which mine has from time to time. Rejoice in Jerusalem those who love her and those who mourn over her. And they say, hey, come on, this doesn't make sense. You either love Israel or you mourn over her. And the answer is yes and no, both and, on one hand, on the other hand. Why mourn over Israel? Simply because at this point, the nation isn't exactly where it needs to be. Less than 1% of the Israeli community, the Jewish community in Israel, are believers in Yeshua. Why would we not mourn that fact? And yet, we recognize that God isn't finished. God isn't finished. Loving Israel 
requires robust faith, folks. Just like living for Yeshua requires robust faith, not in ourselves or in people, but in God. Because you live long enough, you see your shortcomings, you get disgusted with yourself, and of course you get disgusted with people, right? And you can either base your happiness, security, and rejoice, and, and choose not to rejoice because of the facts on the ground, or else you say, God has irresistible plan. Irresistible, folks. Which means that his power is like a bulldozer that will move everything in its path to get the job done. Today, tomorrow, the day after. That's what faith is about. Faith is being sure of what we hope for, certain for the things we do not see. Hebrews 11.1 one. We trust God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. Tell you folks, if I didn't believe that, I would not be engaged in ministry in Messianic Judaism. And those who are here, who are part of our mishpacha, who are part of the, our movement in whatever capacity, you also have to view Israel and Jewish people through the eyes of faith. Otherwise you say, fool you on this. Not in people, but in God. And you see God at work at times and just like Israel did with crossing the Jordan River and just like Samuel did when they defeated the Philistines, they put a bunch of stones. Samuel put a bunch of stones and said, Evan Ha'azer, Ebenezer, God has helped us to this point. And he has. And I, I bring a different perspective into this because I remember the days when our movement was basically barely a blip on the screen. It was a very famous story of Moshe Rosen, the founder of Jews for Jesus, being incensed, just outraged, because a rabbi was invited to come and speak to a group of ministries. They asked him what he thought about Jewish believers. And he used one word to describe it, narishkeit, which in Yiddish means foolishness. It's basically like the notion of uh, a little girl um, trying mom's high heels and taking the lipstick and putting it all, all over her face. That's how he described us, that we're the great pretenders. Because we weren't even on the screen, and yet we invited him. And Moshe Rosen was outraged, and so because of that, he was led to found Jews for Jesus with the motto of making Yeshua an unavoidable reality to the Jewish community. 
Well, it wasn't just Moshe Rosen. It was God, folks. And the Spirit of God moved in power. And we've never been the same. And yes, there are times when God's program seems to lag, you know? Like Paul in Romans 11 says, you know, folks, you may think that God's program has ground to a halt because it doesn't seem to be going anywhere. You ever feel that way? Nah. God is at work, folks, because he has a plan, because he has the power. He will make make things happen. Not necessarily what we envision and what we lay out and what we figure out, but what he determines. And part of his plan involves the flourishing of Israel and the flourishing of other nations, including the Arabs. Romans 11:15 for if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world what their what will their acceptance be but life from the dead if israel not if when israel experiences a massive spiritual revival that's going to spread worldwide and impact all the nations which is god's plan folks What God wants to do with Israel, he wants to do with all the nations, including the Arabs, which, by the way, is also very, the facts on the ground are very discouraging. I was listening and and hearing the fact that in Saudi Arabia, blaspheming the prophet Muhammad uh, will earn you death. You get executed for blaspheming the prophet Muhammad in Saudi Arabia, and Bahrain, which is part of the Arab Spring, supposedly, is considering adopting the same kind of measure. And yet God is at work, folks. God is at work. God is at work. And when things happen, they're miraculous. They demonstrate the power of God, the greatness of God. The plan of God. And God's work is not finished. The valley of the dry bones, where you see that God brought together dead bones and then covered the bones with skin, with with flesh and then with skin then eventually the spirit of God the ruach which by the way also means breath or wind breathed into the corpses brought life and they stood up that's going to happen folks all Israel will be saved Not because they're Israelites, but because the Spirit of God will pour out His work. And we celebrate the fullness of what God has for Israel, for Israel's destiny.
And we at the Yeshuatzion folks are a billboard both to the Jewish community that is often disinterested in its own heritage, its own destiny, and to the church that God is at work, that God has a plan, that God will carry out his plan, that he who has begun his work is faithful. We deal with the facts on the ground, but our eyes are on him and what he has in mind and what he is doing. That's part of our walk of faith. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you and thank you for this powerful and vivid demonstration of your power and your faithfulness to your people Israel. And we bless you, Lord, and thank you that you have called us to be part of that. And Lord, forgive us for all the times when all we can do is mourn what is unfinished and emphasize the half fullness of the glass, Lord, versus seeing what you're doing. Give us, Lord God, the eyes of faith. Give us, Lord God, the robust faith to celebrate your faithfulness, your plans, your power. And Lord God, to align ourselves and move in that same direction and be part, Lord God, of what you're doing and participate in the work of your kingdom and see your kingdom advance in the face of opposition. Lord God, recruit us. We pray that your ruach would stir us. Show us, Lord God, our place in the work of your kingdom. Cause us, Lord God, to be engaged in doing your work. Trusting, Lord God, that because of the victory that you give us, that we should be faithful, unmovable, always abounding in your work. Embracing the fact, Lord, that our labor is not in vain in you, Lord. We bless you, Lord God. We thank you. We exalt your name, Lord, today. In the name of Yeshua. Amen.